extra warm welcome to Art Fictions, the podcast that explores the art of stories and stories of art. I'm artist and producer Gillian Knipe, and this is the final episode for Series 5 and for 2023. Settle in for a deliciously long listen to painter and art therapist Helen Johnson, whose solo exhibition at Pillar Corius in London can be seen until the 6th of January 2024. At one point in our discussion, Helen describes the seemingly oddball practice of Lacan that had him shunned from the psychoanalytic establishment of halting a therapy session when he felt the patient had reached a pivotal point of realisation so that they could stay with the idea and give it the gravitas of thought it required and deserved. And I've been thinking about that since our recording in the context of artistic practice, flipping hurriedly from one online image to another, from one exhibition to the next, and the frenzied non-stop attempt to see everything. And I've been thinking about how quickly I forget about American artist Laura Owen's exploration of how we look at images and the nimbleness of invention that comes from seeing. I've been remembering how quickly I forget about British artist Bridget Riley's exploration of how we make and perceive images that spring from nature. And a new book by Jackie Wulschlager has reminded me about the light and time sensitivity of Claude Monet's paintings. So the result of all this remembering what I've forgotten is that I'm going to spend the Christmas and New Year break closely reading and reflecting. And I'm going to do this mindful of how challenging but possible it is to think critically in difficult times. As well, may I say, as penning an essay, which I'm really excited about, on the superb two-person painting show I saw recently at Kingsgate Project Space, featuring the work of Katie Pratt, my guest for episode 37, and Rosie Mullen. Right now, though, let's hear from the amazing Helen Johnson. Do you want to do a seven-hour podcast? Yeah, let's... (laughs) I've just got so many questions. So, Helen Johnson, welcome to Art Fictions. Thank you for having me. Uh, You've selected The Birds, written by Tardier Vesius. It's published by Penguin Random House in 2019 after its original outing in Norwegian, obviously, uh, in 1957. It's cited by the widely celebrated author Karl Over Kanesgat as the best Norwegian novel ever. In fact, the author was nominated for a mere 57 times for the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he never won. I wonder if he stopped turning up to the ceremony. Yeah, at a certain point, you'd sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a hard pass. This year. Send, send your intern along. His work is said to be characterised by simple, terse and symbolic prose, often about simple living rural people who undergo a severe psychological drama and who, according to critics, are described with immense psychological insight. The Birds certainly fits that description. It's a spare and tenderly written story of two siblings, Mates and Heger, They live an isolated life together near a lake where Heger takes in knitting work to support her and her brother, 
who is mentally challenged in a way that makes him unable to work and heavily dependent on her. Two major events take place in the story which changes the characters' lives. For Mattes, it is the woodcock bird who redirects its flight path to over his house. For Heger, it's the arrival of Jorgen. Towards the end of the story, Mattes challenges himself to an act of independence which doesn't turn out as planned. It was a really challenging read because it was quite distressing, really, but mm. also beautiful. So what did you make of the story and why did you choose this book? I found it a really beautiful depiction of two people's characters and how they've interacted over time. And in particular, you know, because it's written from the point of view of someone who, from my perspective, seems um, in a Lacanian sense as though he has a psychotic structure. Maybe that's going too, too deep too soon, but... Um, I, I think it's a really unique work of fiction in the sense that it doesn't sort of other him, mm. that the story is from his point of view and as he's trying to navigate this symbolic world that doesn't correspond with everyone else's, just the constant barriers he comes up against when it comes to trying to communicate or interact with other people. I also think that aesthetically... The way that it's written and the way that the author sort of takes you around the region where it's set, it's almost like a drawing and it has these mm. beautiful correspondences like the flight path of the woodcock and then the path that Mattis establishes for himself as the ferryman going back and forth across the lake and, yeah, there's these beautiful kind of resonances like that in the prose that I think are really special. Uh, I didn't think of that as a drawing, but as soon as you said it, that's really true. And I have just been to Pilar Corias to have another quick sneaky look at your work. And yeah, these lines that appear through your work, which we'll get on to a bit later in the podcast, mm. that connects so beautifully to, to the book, if you think of it in the context of a drawing. Tell me a little bit more. I don't understand uh, the ins and outs of Lacan. I don't think anyone could truly say no, that. No, he's, 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 he's very difficult to understand. But when you talk about seeing Mattes through this Lacanian lens, what, what mm -hmm. do you mean by that? I mean, in broad strokes, Lacan is known for having made a return to Freud and to start re-examining some of Freud's concepts and elaborating them or calibrating them in a way where sometimes they become an entirely different thing or sometimes they end up with a different name, like the Oedipus complex sort of evolves into the paternal metaphor for Lacan. He talks about people having a structure and in his view people have either a neurotic or a psychotic structure that is not something that you can control and not something that can change, as he understands it. And you can have a psychotic structure for Lacan without being in a psychotic state. So the way he talks about it, it sort of affects the way you understand and use language, like it makes it uh, difficult to use metaphor, particularly to like forge a metaphor yourself. And this is, this is something I think about 
with someone I know who has uh, psychosis, uh, experiences psychotic episodes, who when they use emojis, they're used in a sort of illustrative way, like um, happy birthday, birthday emoji, we're going to the beach, beach emoji. Like it's sort of like the emoji doesn't bring another element of meaning. Right, so it's like an underscore of what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a, yeah, just a very sort of simple example. Yeah. Of... And so Mattes, he he can't think in metaphorical terms. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah. Because it's that, my understanding of Lacan is is based on the real, the imaginary and the symbolic. Yeah. So how does that work for Matisse in, in that structure? For Lacan, someone who's neurotic is sort of held by the symbolic orders that mm-hmm. sort of hold us all and mean that we don't, for example, walk into the street when the traffic light is red because we all understand that there's this symbolic system in place that we I all see. adhere to. But for someone who's psychotic within that that sort of nexus of the symbolic the imaginary and the real because the symbolic order is not functioning in that way it's like they have this sort of unmitigated relation to the real which for Lacan is this sort of space of of swirling kind of intensity and horror so it's like in the book when Mattis you know when there's certain words that he can't utter because it's like it sends a lightning bolt through his body it's like he's bringing his own meaning producing this effect in him that's completely overwhelming mm. and overbearing and that becomes you know the a defining feature of how he finds himself having to navigate the world because he's constantly coming up against these intensities that for other people are not there mm. so are you saying that the rest of us are just neurotic if we're not psychotic that's what Lacan would say. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot more complex than that, but yeah. Yeah, there's a current work at the moment through Art Angel with Marcus Coates, the directors. He, he's done a lot of work around psychosis as well, so that's definitely mm-hmm. something to look out for. But coming back to the story, one of the things that Mattes gets uh, completely overwhelmed by is this woodcock and coming back to what you were saying about how the characters are treated very equally that was one of the beautiful things because Mm. I felt really excited about the woodcock as well I thought it was the most amazing thing that was happening and he had to wake up Hegger and you know this amazing thing has happened and she is exhausted and he is exhausting I mean at one point I thought how does she not just burst out crying and within a few sentences, she does exactly that, turns to the wall and just starts sobbing because she's so frustrated. She's so overcome and exhausted, isn't she? Yeah. 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 My understanding of the woodcock in terms of a symbol is that it's, on the one hand, the arrival with the new harvest is about luck and fortune. But on the other hand, if we think of Shakespeare's Hamlet, it's a reference to foolishness. It's an easy-to-catch bird. It's a reference to somebody who's very gullible. Mm. Um, I don't know. What did you think of the whole woodcock incident? To me, uh, it corresponded to this idea of, to go back to Lacan for a moment, he uses an example of, like, for the psychotic person, something that for anyone else, for a neurotic person, might seem incidental 
can hold this intense gravity of meaning. Like if a car parks across the road and it happens to be red, perhaps there's this message in that that the person feels is directed explicitly at them. So for some people, I think in psychosis, they can be sort of inhabiting an internal world of delusional structure. And for other people, they can experience it as the world making an address to them quite explicitly. And my knowledge of that's not sort of deep enough to say whether those two modes interact, but I would say they probably do. I think it also the significance of the woodcock for for Mattis gets fortified when he's in the clearing and looking at the, at its footprints in the mud and feeling like he has a shared language. Oh, I thought that was beautiful. With it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that he's so able just to, to say that the this. woodcock is making these marks in in the mud and then Mattis is responding with his own marks as if there's a conversation going on. Yeah, which Sorry, is much more kind yeah. of coherent to him than his attempts to converse with people in the world. Yeah. So it's almost like he's found a refuge in his relationship with this bird. Yeah, so that that um, exchange that's described between Mattis and the woodcock, which of course is not an exchange, it's just going on in his own mind, mm. but the tenderness that he feels towards the world is so moving that at one point Hegger says something like you know you're so lucky that you see these things that Mm. I I just don't see and there's something I read I I can't remember exactly but something about the author saying that he felt of all his characters in his books that he was the most connected to Matisse because Mm, of these beautiful this sort of other way of seeing the world that other people didn't see. I also really like that there are moments in the book where his way of seeing starts to blur with other people or that he sort of sets you on a trajectory where it's like, oh, uh-oh, Mattis is, you know, painting himself into a corner again and then suddenly someone will come to meet him, like when he's on the lake with the with the young girls. Right. Or when the... You know, when there's a storm and the two trees that stand for him and his sister, for everyone in the town, not just him, and one gets struck by lightning and he sees it as this moment of great consequence that everyone else is sort of dismissive of. But then the way that the story progresses, it's like that is also a harbinger of his sister being taken from him by this other man and also his his own kind of predicament at the end of the book. Yeah, because the, the two Aspens, as, as you say, that the people in the village uh, referred to as Matisse and Heger, that seemed like a really ordinary thing to be very distressed when one of them was hit by lightning. Yeah. That seemed quite reasonable to me. Yeah. And there's another point where, you know, even though Heger is continually frustrated by him she is constantly regretful of any kind of outburst she has towards him Mm. when she gets frustrated and I felt her frustration but I also felt her anguish at getting cross with her brother and Mm. so he's talking to the farmer's wife at one point and says why are things like they are and you get the sense that he's always asking questions like this 
And then in this really interesting flip, at one point uh, he can hear Hegger crying and the he has these feelings of guilt that sweep over him, thinking, you know, if Hegger's upset, it's bound to be because of me. And he says, you know, is it is it me again? And she answered without turning around, no, it isn't you. Who is it then? No one, she said. I just don't know why I'm alive. And I thought that was a moment where she is talking the way that we are used to Matess talking. Mm. So there's a sort of capability for that way of thinking that is perhaps accessible for all of us, yeah. question mark. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It's almost like he's uh, in the role of like the, the town philosopher, like a Diogenes figure or something oh, like yeah, that yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And yeah, I think in particular the dialogue in the book, the way it's written is very much, um, it's almost like a Homeric narrative where you are with the hero for the duration and following their trajectory. Um, So there's no sort of backstory given. There's no, like, this is what happened to their parents. But there's a lot of exchanges where you as the reader are asked to infer something from a quite paired back exchange that you're given sometimes Mm. Mm. well that was my experience of it anyway have you got an example of that or have you got something that you want to read from the book Uh, I would have to flick through to find an example of that I know what you mean though that things are very much in the present and you are Mm. filling in a backstory for instance but I think that He also has that ability, um, there's a psychoanalyst called uh, Winnicott who writes like this Mm. as well, where he'll write something very simple, but the the ripple effect of what he's writing is massive. And an example in this book would be something like, he glided away from the shore. This is talking about Mattis uh, Mm. rowing uh, on his boat. He was rowing and the things he was leaving behind remained in view the whole time. And I thought, wow, like that is exactly what it's like to go on a journey to shift your position to, you know, whether you're doing it in body or mind, you're always leaving somewhere. You're so much more aware of where you've come from than, you know, where you're going, because where you're going is the future. You can't picture that you can't yeah it's not it's not before you it's like the angel of history that's you know the benjamin thing of the angel rushing forward in time facing backwards yes yes actually i was just listening to another podcast about that on dialogues with helen molesworth that is actually really brilliant yeah um yeah i think an example of what i was talking about yeah like this is from the scene where he's sort of on the lake and he's been rescued by these two young girls. He has quite a nice time with them. I'll, I'll just read this little passage mm-hmm. where he's sort of uh, trying not to stumble and make them think ill of him. And uh, at one point he says, The very top of the list, he said in a loud voice, deliberately making it sound meaningless. What do you mean, Pear? Because he's given them a pseudonym. Today, of course, day of all days. Things were working properly inside his head. Very nicely put, they said. They kept on praising him for the things he said. 
Inga said, we shall remember today too, Per. And I think in a, a lot of the dialogue, it's like Vesos doesn't give you, he doesn't jump between people's heads. He doesn't sort of say the girls were humouring him. You know, it's sort of up to you to try and pass whether they are sincere and generous people in their interactions with him or whether they're a bit scared of him and they're just trying to keep him happy or it's sort of ambiguous what is going on for these girls but it's up to you as the reader to decide what what you think the emotional intent behind the exchange is if that Mm -hmm. makes sense I mean, we are given some interpretations by him. So, for instance, he... Sorry, I I just want to say, before I make this point, I thought the women in the story were so kind to him. Most people were very kind to him, actually. Yeah. Uh, And he does talk about how people are sharp or curt with him, but then they realise they're talking to him. Mm. And then they take their time and he can see that they're trying to be kind but he also finds it very patronizing yeah and as a reader you're kind of there with him yeah seeing that yes these people are kind but it's also infantilizing and in fact at one point the storekeeper gives him free sweets Mm. and when he's offering them these words put Metis in an embarrassing spot He was being given sweets like a child, although he knew about great things like shattered trees, obviously referring to the two aspen trees, and lightning and omens of death. He took the gift, mumbling a thank you, and even popped a sweet into his mouth. He'd been made to feel small. The worst of it was that the storekeeper had only been trying to be kind. Matters had to try to save face. Well... I suppose you can't really help it, he said in a loud voice to the storekeeper. Of course, the storekeeper is a bit stunned by this comment, but Mm. I don't know, I felt I was on Matis's side, but, you know. Yeah, well, it's almost like he's the one having to sort of persevere with the limitations of everyone else in Mm. those moments, which I like. Yeah, Yeah, because he's not a child, Mm. And people don't know how to relate to him. And also, of course, there's that awkwardness or the difficulty that is other people can't think about. And he touches on it every now and again. He touches on it with the two girls that he meets and he touches on it. At one point, he's sitting next to his sister and saying, if you were any other girl, is that he also has a sexual drive. Yeah. He doesn't know where to place that. And nobody is even aware of that because they're treating him like a child. But he's not a child. He's nearly 40. Yeah, and he has that incredible dream where he flexes his muscles and the shirt tears on his on his sleeve, <laughs> yeah. which I think this is another thing that interests me about this this book is how he he seems to spontaneously fall asleep and have these long sort of languid yeah. daytime sleeps, and that his world is proximate to a dream world much yes. more so than a lot of other people's and that's that's something that makes a lot of sense to me and yeah. I feel like that dreams are always coming in and out of my paintings and weaving in with things brought in from the conscious world. Yeah, well, when I think of the painting with the eyeball that is teeth, 
and somebody is extracting a tooth, I do hope that's a dream and not (laughs) reality. (laughs) I constantly sat with this question when I was reading the book of, is Mattis wrong for the world or is the world wrong for Mattis? And, of Mm. course, neither is, is, I suppose, the answer because the world needs to encompass him in some way and he needs to encompass the world but it's really Mm. really really difficult for him and it's really difficult for everybody else around him yeah and it's also it's almost like they're just these different levels of attunement like he's so strongly attuned to these natural signs and rhythms in his environment that other people are oblivious to that it's almost like they're just two different kind of sine waves that don't touch each other at many points Mm. and as an artist you know we're always making connections you know we're Mm. looking for those connections and the very start of the book Mattis says to his sister oh you're like lightning Mm. you know with those knitting needles of yours I mean I love that part maybe we could read that that actually that first page if we have time because I think it's so beautiful okay it was evening Mattis looked to see if the sky was clear and free of cloud. It was. Then he said to his sister Hager to cheer her up, You're like lightning. The word sent a cold shiver down his spine, but he felt safe all the same, seeing the sky was so perfect. With those knitting needles of yours, I mean, he added. Hager nodded, unconcerned, and went on with the large sweater she was making. Her knitting needles were flashing. She was working on an enormous eight-petalled rose, which some man would soon be wearing. So I find that just like the materiality of that introductory couple of paragraphs so beautiful, the contrast between the lightning and the needles and these sharp imagery and then the soft eight-petalled rose that's intended for a man's torso, this sort of reaching out, you know, or some kind of like wish for some sensual connection yeah and also the comfort that she provides you know she's Mm. the great comforter of matters but sometimes she's very sharp with him hence the knitting needles I suppose Mm. you're right in that first couple of paragraphs is really the whole story (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) because the lightning comes back in real life and you know, in, in, in terms of an art practice, uh, coming back to looking for connections, you're, you're constantly looking for those for your work. Yeah, the mm. bedrock of your work. I, I think the other thing about that introduction is the, the sort of tension that's set up straight away uh, that the novel retains uh, throughout, mm. which is the click clacking of the knitting needles and the tap tap tapping of Matessa's uh, middle finger on his knee, mm. and so you've you've got this body tension, this tightness mm. uh, straight away. And I I kept feeling like it was an effort to sort of stay calm through the book, you know, like we're mm. on the verge of something, and then there's the woodcock incident, and then being the ferryman, which of course. Mm. you know in symbolic terms the ferryman is associated with death yeah um and Jorgen comes along you think oh now is something going to happen so you're always on this sort of edge I felt and it's also like you're on sort of on eggshells on the level of language because you don't know what the trigger's going to be it's like 
that set up with the word yes. lightning in the first paragraph is like what's what is going to transpire that becomes like a massive trigger that for someone else wouldn't have any significance yeah. so it's always like language has been cracked open and the potential of its readability is destabilized for you as a as a reader I think yeah I mean isn't that also a Lacanian thing because he's mm. you know, heavily into language obviously but yeah that you are created by what you say or something what, yeah what's his I mean he famously said the unconscious is structured like a language right so for him yeah. the way that we use language and that we're constantly creating these sort of chains of signifiers and handing each other these signifiers that then get re-signified and re-signified, that that's the same way that meaning flows in the unconscious mm. mind, in his view. Mm. And also something about, or just to extend that rather, something about how we're not who we are saying things, we become what we say or something. I, I I know I haven't got it quite right, but almost, so just applying it to the book, so this idea that if Mattis talks about lightning, then lightning will strike, you know, that, yes. that, that you know, something will happen. And yeah. then you get, you know, that he's somehow caused this. It's Yeah, and this again is that relationship between the symbolic and the real. Yeah, yeah. It's like Mattis has a, has a line straight yeah. to the real where he can conjure these things. I, I was ready for the film by the end of it. I've thought that too. Yeah. It would be a beautiful film, wouldn't, wouldn't it? So is there anything else you want to mention about the book? One thing I guess we haven't talked about is the boat and just the imagery of this boat that's falling apart that becomes both Mattis's project and sense of purpose but also his sister's means to be rid of him during the day. Mm. So it's sort of like he's encouraged to apply himself to that work but then I guess I think of the boat as a metaphorical image in the book as well as this structure in which he's always sort of plugging the holes but it's always inadequate and that the structure itself is this thing that can't hold like my read on that is that it's if it's a metaphor it's a metaphor for the situation that he's in with his sister I, you know, I feel like it's also kind of set up from the beginning of the book that his sister's a little bit older than him and, you know, that perhaps she's sort of passing out of the window of, like, the possibility of becoming a mother biologically and that maybe that's a sort of unspoken pressure that gets brought to bear and feeds into, you know, her relationship later where Mattis feels like... Mm his kind of connection to his sister gets irreparably broken. Yeah, the boat is fraught with all sorts of problems, isn't it? I mean, it's a vessel for carrying, it's a vessel of safety. I thought about him working on the farm, working with the boat, working with the trees, mm. and thought there's no part of nature that he has a proper sort of synergy with, even the woodcock comes to its fate and mm. that doesn't work out so nothing sort of works out in terms of you know if you think of it in terms of the elements like he doesn't seem to be at home anywhere in the world and 
the boat as a metaphor for his relationship and it's a really painful attempt to to maintain something to hold him and to keep him safe. Yeah, the whole thing with the oars that he finds these kind of rough hewn oars in the shed and yeah. decides to invest his whole fate in using these oars and taking yeah. the boat out when he knows it's unsound. It's like And he's, he's gonna really... let nature decide. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's really setting himself up to fail. I can understand that he does it, you know, because mm. if you accept, which I don't accept, but if you accept that these two men can't coexist with the sister, mm. um, which personally she makes it very clear that she has the capacity that they can coexist and she's very, very worried about his safety and if the boat is safe enough and please let Jorgen check it out, he knows these things, mm. uh, which Mattes quite reasonably finds, you know, offensive. But he thinks it's, you know, there's some sort of fate to be to be dealt or something uh, with the two men. Yeah. There's also this sense of force coming from Jorgen. There's this moment where Jorgen drags him out of the outdoor toilet during the storm as this sort of test to see how he can fare when exposed to the elements. And, you know, whereas his sister has always given space to Mattis's coping mm. mechanisms and allowed him to exist on his own terms. Yeah, because he's but afraid then, of the yeah. Storm. Yeah, but then Jorgen comes in with this need to force Mattis out of those patterns and try and force him into the world of the, the sort of shared world of other humans further Yeah, to achieve his ends of supplanting him, really. Yeah. Yeah. But be a man. Mm. <laughs> oh, dear. So speaking of symbols, fragility, meaning and the limitations of understanding, let's talk about your paintings. Helen Johnson, I first saw your work, Warm Ties, at the Institute for Contemporary Art in London in 2017, where you had six, mm. six, yeah, yeah. six it's huge six. canvases hanging from ceiling to floor and covered with scenes parodying the colonising characters of Australia's early white settlement years. Then at Brixton Station, where you had Things Held Fast, which was a mural depicting a community garden, and there you joined likes of Joy Labinjo, Denzel Forrester, Eliza Nissenbaum, Najidika Akunili Crosby and Shanti Panchal, who have all done murals in that fantastic space. Mm. And I've also seen your two solo shows at Pilar Corias in 2019, titled Agency, and right now you have a show there called Opening. You've also participated in a major touring exhibition alongside the equally exceptional Indigenous artist Judy Watson and participated in rediscovering the Path Unlearning Australia at SEMA, which is the sole museum of art, as well as Carnavalesca at the prestigious Kunstverein in Hamburg, Germany. What's quite apparent from warm ties at the ICA to your exhibition right now 
is your significant shift from the political to the personal, though one could easily argue, and I certainly would, that the political <laughs> is personal. Mm. So let's begin with your current exhibition titled Opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may refer to a portal, a way in, a threshold, perhaps a new beginning, opening up to new experiences. So what does it mean for you? I decided on that title because it felt to me like the paintings were sort of riddled with all these occlusions and holes, uh, like eyes, mouths, holes literally as sort of punctures or abyssal kind of portals, as you say, into Mm. the body. And thinking about those, particularly eyes and mouths, which are throughout a lot of the paintings as these sort of... um, points from which we take in the world and address the world but also these soft physically vulnerable points in our bodies and the whole exhibition is connected to the fact that you trained as an art therapist yes how did that come about so late 2017 I applied to do a master of art therapy at La Trobe University at the time I wasn't entirely sure what exactly art therapy was in terms of how you would practice it but what I did understand about it was that it was predicated on an idea of art that is about connecting with people and allowing people a space of healing through the use of the art materials and through the sort of containing space of the therapeutic relationship and It's also an idea of art that's very oriented away from outcomes and audiences. So it's it's an anomaly to exhibit that work. It's more common to dispose of the work or destroy it, and sometimes that can be part of the therapeutic process as well. Um, Do you interpret the work that's made, or is the making of the work... Okay, you, you explain. So... It's up to the person who's made the work to reflect on it and bring their own meaning to it. Mm -hmm. So as a therapist, you would never say, oh, that means this to me. (laughs) You know, occasionally if you see something in in someone's practice as they're engaging in art therapy that you find striking, occasionally I might say to someone, do you mind if I say what I associate that with? But it's very, uh, it's a very tentative thing, and generally not something that you would do. And to me, that idea was so beguiling and refreshing, just as a kind of counterpoint to contemporary art, which is very, you know, having done the ICA show earlier that year that had toured around and making these massive works that are so assertive in space and so much about bodies encountering them and things like this. I'd also at that point been on a personal level really struggling with infertility and I'd kind of reached a point where I was like, oh, maybe I'll never have biological children but perhaps this can be a way to have another means to nurture or express care in my life. So I applied for the Masters and then the day I got a letter of offer was the same day I found out I was pregnant after like four years of trying to get oh, pregnant. How lovely. So that was, uh, that was like, oh, okay, this coming year is going to look very different from what I thought it might. 
So, um, yeah, so the my art therapy practice or my sort of shift to becoming a therapist, which has also involved um, walking away from being an academic entirely, has sort of accompanied the life of my daughter, who's now five, and I've only just finished my degree in art therapy. And in that work, I've focused on working with adults, mostly in acute mental health settings. So, yeah, thinking a lot actually about the role that art therapy can play in giving people who are in in a psychotic state a place where they can work things out or slowly make their way towards a point of engagement. So often the work of art therapy in that context, even if someone's producing incredibly sort of elaborate, symbolically rich works, the function of the art therapy is not to then like enjoy those works in Lacanian terms or sort of get into the meaning of those spaces, but to let the person know that they're safe to express those things for themselves and put them into the world. Sorry, that was a bit of a digression no, from talking about my painting. No, so interesting. But speaking of safe, I've also taught special needs adults with mental health problems and not people in severe psychosis or anything like that. But um, the one thing that I think that working with them gives them more than anything else is is a sense of safety. I, th- I mm. really, really connect with that. It's about the holding that goes on, I think, and them holding themselves and seeing that they can do mm. that. Yeah. yeah, it was put to me in terms of a skin by Catherine Killick, who's a British Jungian analyst now but right. worked as an art therapist for many, many years. Yeah, the idea of a container or a holding, it's almost like a enabling the person to develop a skin to sort of mediate between themselves and the real, as Lacan would have it. Yeah, that's a really nice analogy. So I wondered if you'd become a mother because you did have a painting called A Mother in mm, Agency. Indeed, that, that <laughs> exhibition. exhibition was... Um, Yeah, when my daughter was a little younger than one was when I started making those paintings. So I was still breastfeeding and really um, having this experience of my body that I was like, wow, my body hasn't morphed and changed like this since I went through adolescence, really, and it probably never will again. But hey, wait for menopause. Oh, yes. There's something to look forward to. Yeah, let's not not, um, fail to acknowledge the significance of that. Yeah. But I also was very struck during pregnancy by, I think I'd had this sort of fantasy prior to that, that female biologically kind of bodies with a uterus, I guess you'd say, you know, that their raison d'etre is to reproduce. Mm. But then when I was pregnant, I was like, this is not my body's teleological kind of endpoint at all. This is a complete outlier. And my whole body is having to adapt in all these weird and bizarre ways to cope with this alien that's growing inside it. Yeah. And I think that really influenced the way that I was painting bodies, which in those paintings in agency started stretching out and filling the space of the canvas in a way that the sort of one-to-one correspondence of a life-size body didn't feel adequate to what I was trying to embody in the paintings at that moment. Yeah, that that whole exhibition felt like a real 
like a transitionary phase mm. uh, and a real struggle with something to me that mm. um, compared to warm ties and also I can now locate it in terms of opening and the <laughs> the idea of the baby being an alien is so true because <laughs> your body releases it's either a hormone or something that goes on chemically in your body literally so it doesn't expel the baby yeah um, yeah so at one level your body knows it's not supposed to be <laughs> it's yeah it's really a struggle with its own immune system not to expel this life this is a bit of an outlier as well which you know i hope is okay but why lacan in terms of art therapy are there multiple options very much so yeah i mean within art therapy it's sort of like a microcosm of the field of yeah psychotherapy more more generally because i think melanie klein did a lot of work with children didn't she she did yeah yeah, Yeah. and it's also yeah an an analyst it's interesting because obviously melanie klein and anna freud are both very big presences in psychotherapeutic practice in the uk less of a presence in australia but they are there the reason i am interested in lacan is from having undergone my own lacanian psychoanalysis Mm mm-hmm He's sort of a bit of an outlier. I think a big part of it was that he believes in being able to cut sessions at a chosen point and it might be two minutes into the session or it might be ten minutes, but if something significant happens or is spoken, one of his sort of mechanisms or tools is that's it for today, we're leaving it there and sort of leave the person with that moment so that it doesn't get lost or what's yeah the... so that that it's like an accent on the significance of that mm. point that he believes you know if there's not a cut then that might slip away but um it was a commonly held view that that was unethical because he still would be charging the same amount of money for those sessions but i also just think because lacanian theory is so unwieldy and because all of his, well, most of his writings are from seminars that he gave and he had such a circuitous way of speaking and really indulged in in that, it can be quite frustrating to read Mm. at times and Mm. it can take quite a bit of work to start penetrating to what the core ideas are. Mm. You know, he started out as a psychiatrist and wrote his doctoral dissertation on a case of psychosis and, yeah, I think it's Mm. there's some really valuable things to be learnt from him in that regard that's such a drastic shift from the you know the sort of 50 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever the standard session is yes Um, obviously I have some experience in this in being a patient but coming just coming back to the work how, how does that sit with you that you've had your own therapy you've done this training and then you do these paintings which are very much personal paintings Mm. so you're exposing quite a lot about yourself Mm, yeah this exhibition in particular (laughs) that the prospect of that as these works started sort of sloshing out was uh excruciating to think oh god as I can feel the audience hurtling towards these works Mm. Mm. but um by the same token I was like this is where I am in my practice and in what's going on in my world and this is what the works have to be in this moment. It's very important to me to be true to that. 
it's interesting. I've had a few conversations with people about this sort of shift between works that deal with broader socio-historical constructs like the works at the ICA and then works like the ones in opening that are very subjective and internal. And there's definitely a change in the way I relate to the archive that's happened in the intervening years and I think that that change is associated with running art therapy groups in particular where generally in my groups I'm always working alongside the other participants as a way of sort of deflating the power differential. Mm-hmm. And so they, they don't feel like they're being watched, you know. And in that situation there doesn't tend to be any source material. It's just you and the materials and see what comes out. And I found that such a rich and fruitful way to work, to have the confidence to just sit with a blank piece of paper and, a, and an implement and see what comes out of that. You're making this point, I understand, or I assume, because in Warm Ties and in Things Held Fast, which was the Brixton mural, you, and you've also done a PhD. I have, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you would normally do an enormous amount of research. Yeah, um, and the yeah. archive was very much at the centre of both of those bodies of work. But on another level, I think in the broader sense of thinking about the trajectory of my work, they're one and the same thing. It's something that I've always done to sort of go in and out like the tide in terms of sometimes engaging with these broad outward ideas and then sweeping back inwards. Mm. And I think in the end, both of those ways of working, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive either, but they both come down to the question of how to be a subject in the world. And particularly, you know, when the works are addressing these broader colonial questions, which was also the case with the works that I showed alongside Judy Watson, Mm. a lot of those works contain figures that were you know, from the press that was being published at the in the early period of colonisation and invasion in the part of Australia where I live, which was in the 1830s, 1840s and sort of leading up to Federation in 1901. I often will take these figures that were depicted, you know, at a quite a small scale and bring them up to the scale of a human in the world that you can encounter and I do that particularly because I think there are so many unpalatable aspects of Australian history on the side of the colonists that get swept under the rug and disavowed. And there's so many parliamentarians from the first sitting of Australian Parliament in 1901 who that sitting went for several days and when you read the Hansard records of it, the official records, it's basically each of these white men standing up and pledging their fealty to the project of white supremacy in unambiguous terms. Mm. And so we don't get taught that in school. <laughs> but then In this country as well, yeah. but the topic is different, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, I was sort of reading through this and then looking up these men and finding their, you know, their headshots on their Wikipedia page or whatever mm. and um, questioning what happens if you bring that figure back and go, let's not forget that these were the foundations upon which this whole colonial society was based, that we still are very invested in perpetuating. Yeah. Regardless of the lip service that gets paid to, you know, closing the gap or 
whatever the government wants to say to try mm. and convince people that that the situation is otherwise, that they're committed to Indigenous equality because nothing they actually do suggests that that's the case. Yeah. Just for reference, closing the gap refers to the gap in life expectancy comparing Indigenous people with the rest of the population of Australia. In mm, um, health also, outcomes, education, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of multi. It's, it's all the things that you can imagine uh, are all the things that there is a gap between the two. Um, so just on warm ties, and we'll come back to opening uh, mm-hmm. in a moment, but uh, Hetty Judah wrote in The Guardian that the subject of the work was from from fat landowners farting the national anthem to gentlemanly chaps passing around bribes, Helen Johnson tells the ugly truth about how Australia was carved up. And I remember when I saw the exhibition, there was a lot of work on the other side of the canvas because they're all hanging Mm. canvases. And I was so moved by this excerpt that you'd written down of a speech by Paul Keating. I actually wrote some of the words again and I I don't know where I put them, but Mm -hmm. it it was the experience of being moved by his words. He was the Prime Minister of Australia between 1991 and 1996. The experience of seeing the words in contrast to that imagery was, I guess, what was really important to me. Uh, And Mm -hmm. of those paintings, I understand that three of them, Seat of Power, a Feast of Reason and a Flow of Soul, as well as Bad Debt, are all owned by the Tate. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. The Tate in partnership with the MCA in New South Wales. Okay, yeah. okay. So in Bad Debt, on the wall of the bedroom are two pictures. One is derived from a print by Fred Williams. So he's an Australian painter of the 1900s. The other one is an image mm. of a man beating a woman that was published in an issue of the Police Gazette. Imagine having a police gazette today. I know. Ooh, how terrifying. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's the reference to Fred Williams in that for? Fred Williams is an artist who was, um, you know, prolific and a real kind of feeder of the art market in Australia, you know, probably during the 1950s and 60s in particular, mm. I'd say. You know, he would make these landscape paintings and prints that were quite sort of beautiful depictions of the intractability of landscape. But he also, um, he undertook a major commission that was funded by Rio Tinto for the the NGV Mm. that basically served as a piece of propaganda to give the mining company a good image as it was pillaging the, the very land that he was depicting I suppose so I guess it's just yeah. it's just marking that level of complicity between art practices seemingly innocuous pictures hanging on walls yeah and... I'm so disappointed by that exhibition because I went and saw it and it was a massive shift for me because I'd never seen that I recall I guess a white painter in Australia that depicted the landscape that made any sense to me until mm. I saw his paintings. Yeah. And then, of course, years later, I just completely cringed and yeah. imploded at the idea that this was a mining company. Actually, my son has just been there and said to me, is there any part of the Australian economy that is not about digging up the earth? Not, no. Not that I know, but I Even haven't lived though. there for a long time, so... Mm. But uh, there's a huge exhibition on at the moment uh, at the Tate 
by Philip Guston, which is extraordinary. And mm, I went to see that on oh, Sunday. Mm. So I had never seen before. I saw his previous big show. And I'd never seen the mural that he did in Mexico. Mm. And I I just was thinking of your paintings mm, because yeah. I was looking at these aged walls. Of course, they're aesthetically so beautiful. And then you've mm. got in this little ante room uh, next to the main mural, you've got a little cartoon. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, it's a Helen Johnson. But That's in... <laughs> nice. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that. In Mexico, 1934. Guston's beautiful works conjured that association. <laughs> yeah. So the way you depict clothing in your paintings, that sort of dappled surface, it looks like something scrunched up. It looks like something that's aged. Mm. And those murals have the same sort of surface. Actually, I'm going to stop there because I want to refer to an essay by Claire G. Coleman in the book Know My Name. So mm-hmm. you're featured in this. It's a, a brick of a book, can I just say, <laughs> of women artists published by the National Gallery of Australia. Who knew there were so many women artists? Shocking. Um, <laughs> and she refers to that little guy in the bottom right corner of A Feast of Reason and A Flow of Soul, the, mm. your 2016 painting, where there's a cartoonish rendering of a stripy-topped burglar with Mm. a sack of stolen goodies slung over his shoulder. So she talks about him being the most honest character in the Mm. painting. You know, he's an honest thief as opposed to the top-hatted gentlemen who are drinking wine and smoking cigars, the thieves of country who monetize colonialism and who will receive praise and power and wealth that will translate into intergenerational privilege for their descendants. And when I think of murals, and I think of this sort of hanging canvas, you know, recalling glorious tapestries for grand houses, Mm. all this suggests to me the depiction of those who will be immortalised and Mm. sort of questioning that, taking that to task. Uh, How Mm. how do you place your work in that context I'm glad you kind of zoomed in on that little figure in the corner because I think it's um it's almost like a key to the work in a way uh, it's I like remember, an, a little emoji yeah yeah it's like a little mask yeah, robber yeah on one hand he's you know referring to the level of theft that's going on at the level of the state and the ruling classes but then on another he can refer to, you know, so many people who were transported to the penal colony mm. for petty theft of, you know, a loaf of bread or whatever. So it's sort of like he stands for both simultaneously. Yeah, because the commoner will be caught and punished. Mm. So how do you think of that work now in the face of Australia's recent failed referendum that would have seen an official <laughs> Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice in Parliament? In fact, in this podcast, in episode 35, Paola Bella talks a lot about Indigenous artists and being Indigenous, of course, and there being mm. no treaty. She was very kind on her Instagram at the no result of the referendum, whereas Yoni Scarce just wrote in her story, fuck off Australia. Mm. <laughs> so I think a lot of people felt like that. Yeah, mm. I mean, it was such a divisive moment and because it wasn't 
like a clean yes no debate the same old scaremongering yeah bullshit of aboriginal people are going to be coming for your backyard you know like it was absurd but then on the it's really nasty yeah it's mm. it's really pernicious and then on the radical left there was a staunchness of saying women like mariki onus saying i come from generations of people who've been struggling for justice and none of my elders have ever called for a voice to parliament it's not the objective you know but I think that wasn't because they genuinely wished to be enshrined in the constitution that oppresses them it was because they feared the racist blowback that was coming for them if Mm. the vote was no which it was Mm. so I feel like when I make paintings that make that address to the colonial culture and its underpinnings it is very much about that culture, not about the Indigenous stories that existed around and alongside. It's about, I think, as members of a colonising society, we have a responsibility to deal with our own shit, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and there is a lot of shit in some of those paintings. There or, is. It's yeah. a real uh, <laughs> motif and another yeah. common element with opening as well, which opens with a painting of a torso extruding a big kind of tubular unending shit. So I was going to ask you about that. So what's that painting called? It's called Constituted Object. Oh, okay. Mm. But it also has depictions of lips and eyes. Eyes, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could unpack a couple of these paintings in opening for us. I made that painting just as I was sort of wrapping up my process of psychoanalysis and the... You know, it's like in that dynamic, it's like you're lying on a couch speaking and behind you the analyst is resting their gaze on you, which you can't meet with your own. So I think for me the eyes and the mouths also have that association of speech Mm -hmm. and the gaze. But I was also interested in ideas around mourning and closure. I was reading uh, Darian Leader's book, The New Black, when I was Mm -hmm. making that painting, which is um, a book that sort of traces the shift from using language around mourning and melancholia within, I guess, a sort of psychiatric vernacular to depression. What differences there are between this idea of melancholia as it existed for a long time and the idea of depression that sort of usurped it. And he talks a lot in that book about processes of of mourning and that there's this sense in which when someone or something significant disappears from life there's a collective need to make a space for the loss it's almost like everything has to adjust around the loss to make sense of it and he talks about you know that this can't happen without a kind of collective communal process and he talks about the ritual of like everybody eating at a wake. It's almost like a ritual devouring of, of the lost person. And then the shitting out is almost like a reconstituting of, you know, it's something that's been lost is given a new form, but also enables you to move on. So it's yeah. it's bound up with those ideas, that yeah. painting. Because in that image, it's not that divorced from an image of, say, giving birth. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, or an umbilical cord 
yes, result. Yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. sort of abjection of this thing yeah, that's at once part of your body and not part of your body. And uh, I wonder if you could also just say that there's some sort of fleshing out, pardon the pun, of <laughs> a, a, another painting. Perhaps we could talk about Lack, which is a painting where... Uh, it's a woman who is holding up a dress in front of her, but it's all quite transparent or semi-translucent rather. Mm. And um, she's covered in eyes that are like almost like blinding flies on the on her face and body. And she's kind of trying on this dress for size, if you like, as if she's looking into the mirror. But she's of course looking out to us. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about the backstory of that? Yeah. Painting? I mean, I was thinking with a lot of these paintings about this idea of um, that as people in the world we are navigating this space between our bodies as they are physically in space, this sort of metaphysical idea of what a body is that's not contained by that reality. And then I feel that now there's also this sort of online space where bodies are represented and flattened out and idealised and it's like each subject exists somewhere between these three things in a very complex way. And I guess that painting was an attempt to capture the sort of dissonance between those states, the sort of holes that became eyes on the surface of the skin and that remain holes on some parts of the body of that figure came from a recurrent anxiety dream that I've had when my body is full of holes like that, sort of like a crumpet. It's really awful. <laughs> the reason it's called lack is because that's another sort of Lacanian term that refers to, you know, as I was talking about before with the, the person with a psychotic structure having this sort of unmitigated relation to the real for Lacan, a neurotic person, the real is there for them too, but maybe there's there's an idea that it's there through a hole or there's this absence and that absence for him gets sort of established in infancy at a moment when you start to realise that you're a different person in the world from your primary carer, that you're not bound in this dyad forever. You know, it's obviously a very important moment to being like, wow, I'm a person in the world, but also being like, there's this loss associated with that. It That's creates right. this yeah. hole when you get mm. torn away from that fusion. And for Lacan, it's like once that hole is there, that becomes the driver for desire because you can't, in his view, desire something unless you have this fundamental sense of something missing. Mm. And I think through the process of my own analysis, I sort of arrived at this idea that those anxiety dreams correspond to a lack that is this whole series of tiny holes rather than one nice, neat, mm. singular hole. <laughs> wow, that's um, completely fascinating because it does make me, when you're talking, I think of a sponge and the fact that you can soak up and hold a lot of things uh, but also mm. can suffer under its own weight, I suppose. Speaking of bodies, let's move into the bodies of your actual work, the physical stuff. You paint with exquisite detail and this texture where we can see thread detail on jeans, there's x-ray qualities, there's dappled fabrics that I mentioned before, there's cartoonish line drawings, there's overlays of text. I was trying to get some of the text that you'd, <laughs> some of the little <laughs> clues that you've uh, left on, on your paintings which are partially hidden. And 
there's body and body functions. There's a sort of sculptural or 3D element to the work. You use these thick mediums where you end up with these carved lines. Mm. Uh, I also saw a film of you working on the floor and smearing paint over this <laughs> heavily textured ground, which looked like such fun. And there's also collage, which is actual or implied. So it's really difficult mm. to understand what layer comes first. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about where the work starts for you, how planned or unplanned it is with each painting. Over to you. So I'm not a great planner. I tend to sort of um, generate imagery on a smaller scale just through drawing and that's something that's become, I feel like I've become more and more of a prolific drawer in recent years. When I was in art school in the late 90s they would say you know you need to do studies and plan out your paintings and I didn't relate to that idea at all hmm. but I feel like now the drawings just become like this sort of raw source material that drifts around the studio and things get pinned up and then ripped down and put with another thing and you know like that lang that conversation starts on paper but in terms of how the actual paintings evolve it's very much layer by layer when I start a body of work I set up all of the surfaces at the same time so it will start as you know six blank pieces of canvas or whatever and then that each one sort of starts on its own journey but it's not until the first layer's been put down that the question of what the next layer is going to be is thought about in most cases and it's very much a process of painting and then masking out certain areas and then painting over that masked layer and then masking again and that often will happen you know on three or four different registers so there's all these different qualities intersecting and interfering with each other which I find very has very interesting metaphorical potential for how we make sense of things and how to think about things in a way that isn't just getting seduced into linearity when we're thinking about history and things. So it's often almost always really the case that the finishing of the painting is more of an excavation than an application. Mm. Yeah, because the, those because of whatever medium you use, they become almost like carvings. Yeah, yeah. it's like a moulding paste that has quite a lot of marble dust in it, so mm. it is almost, yeah, proximate to stone in a way. Mm. Yeah, sometimes the tape comes out from the surface really easily and satisfyingly in this sort of way <laughs> and other times it's it's an absolutely tedious sort of pick pick picking with a stanley knife to yeah. find all the little bits that and they you know if the paint cures too much over the top of it it becomes very hard to extract them and then the there's a lot of lines through all of the work and we talked before about flight paths and the path that Mattis takes from one side of the riverbank to the other and you know not literally but they do remind me of a sort of landscape cartography but of the image of the self painting the image and making connections almost like a otherworldly connections mm. at one point Jennifer Higgy was on this podcast and we were talking about uh, her book Spirit World in which she features one of my favourite painters Georgiana Horton and mm. she also does that 
sort of otherworldly, spiritual lines everywhere. What are, mm. Those lines are critical for your work. Tell me about those. Mm. I mean, it depends on the painting, but often I will bring things like architectural blueprints into the paintings, but I like to kind of distort them and push them around in Photoshop to create these sort of liquid flowing lines as a way of sort of destabilising the rigid authority that they start out with. So that's quite a sort of common element in my paintings at the moment. But sometimes they're also just drawings that depict different levels of interaction or expression. So if there are sort of life-sized figures in the paintings that are interacting with one another in a way that's suggestive of one sort of quality of interaction or connection the line work that's sort of seething through that scene might indicate a different kind of emotional interaction or something else that's going on under the surface. I guess they're a bit sort of paranoid in that way, but it's also like a nice um, connection back to the book, I think, because it feels like for Mattis there's always this idea of a subtext that's lingering there like a threat or actually ruling the decisions that he's making about what's the right thing to say in a particular Mm. moment that might just hold a completely different association for the person that he's talking to or might pass them by entirely, as with the interaction with the shopkeeper who gives Mm. him the sweets. Yeah, it is a nice coming back to the book. The other key aspect of your work is loose hanging canvases. So... Mm. They were present in warm ties and opening, but not in agency. So that was a mm. surprise to see. And that must have been a, you know, a specific uh, purposeful decision on your part, So, I, which I'd like to know about. But just to say that they're kind of like tapestries, but of course today <laughs> they're like and they are unsupported canvases because we're, we're quite mm. used to... Uh, canvases appearing uh, off their wooden supports but more than that I suppose for me they become different things in different exhibitions so in Mm. opening for instance I more thought of hides hanging hides Mm, and hiding and hiding in plain sight and Mm. in warm ties they felt more like the sort of paper thin or precarious walls and structures that we create Mm. um, in that particular exhibition was the, if you like, the false walls of colonialisation that deems a sort of structure of life. So a constitution, for instance, that excludes the uh, Indigenous people, so therefore why you have to have a referendum in the first place, I'll never know. But can you talk about the large scale, the monumental, the uh, hanging canvas where it's almost like the content becomes the structure because of the weight of the image, the weight of the paint itself? Yeah, I think the scale of the works relates to this insistent sort of impulse I have to bring bodies up to life scale. So those works at the ICA were... um three by three and a half metres, some of them. Once you get to that scale, it's it's got a very strong association with history painting. But I also think 
by that token, like if those works were stretched and hung, it sort of imbues them with an authority, like they really bear down on you and they still kind of bear down on you as unstretched works, but it also means there are these moments where as you pass by a work, it's reduced to a single line at the side. Yes, it is. And yeah. it's always whenever I sort of watch people interacting with those free-hanging works in space, it's a circular encounter where people circle around to the back and look at the notes or the sketching that's on the back and then they circle back around to the mm. front to re-encounter it with this other knowledge that might have changed what reading they have of what's at the front. And, and, and in opening, you've specifically got a double-sided yeah, painting. Yeah. Is that the fir first one? It's the first one yeah, that's really, yeah. yeah, frontal painting on both sides. Yeah. You know, having it mean that there's this more complicated encounter where you can't just see something once and decide what it means. It's like, no, there's always more to it than that. I also had a realisation that working unstretched like that sort of harks back to my high school years when I was often in charge of painting backdrops for school plays and they were these sort of four by ten metre sheets of canvas for the play and groups of us sitting on them to paint them and then hoisting them up and then folding them away until the next year and I think the impermanence of that is appealing to me. Mm. And also that they're part of the staging, of course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that when you're in front of something like that, you yourself are an actor in some sense rather than just a viewer or a consumer. Yeah, and I think especially in opening, I mean, the way Warm Ties was hung, you literally had to walk around the work to be able to see it all. You could sort of go down one side of the gallery uh, at Pilar Corius for opening and come back up the other side and you, it, it's not as much manoeuvring but particularly with opening that's exacerbated by all those eyes because who's mm. looking at who in this situation yeah it's like they're your others sort yeah. of holding you in their gaze as you hold them in yours yes that it's a it's an exchange yes yeah. and the elusive other is something that is often uh discussed in a psychoanalysis. Yes. So just moving on now, what or who, uh, what work or which artists in particular have been an important influence on you? Not Fred Williams. Not so much. <laughs> oh, it's always such a big question. I mean, the artist who is foremost in my mind at the moment, who is definitely one who's influenced me, is Nicole Eisenman because she has this big show on it. The White the Chapel. Chapel. <laughs> yeah. um, and I've never seen her work in real life before okay. seeing this show the other day. I find her earlier works particularly resonate with me, you know, the painting of the Seder meal with her family and the works of that moment because I think it was this time when she was dealing with each figure in each painting as an individual subject and there's such diverse treatments of their of their bodies they're brought into all these different forms of materiality that are then forced to have to deal with each other within the space of the picture and I think that's really powerful. Wow that's super interesting so I have specifically held off going to see that exhibition really until I 
talk to you. I've also <laughs> put off seeing Christina Kryles as well mm, because um, my last recording was with Melanie Jackson and we talked about Nicole Eisenman um, oh, cool. in yeah. that. So I thought, oh, I don't want to see your work through those eyes. Whereas I yeah. did go to Philip Guston and I did think of you, which I knew I would. Other artists who more recently I found really compelling are um, Maya Rusnik. She's also kind of working as a painter at this nexus of motherhood and psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. and her works are quite different from mine but it's almost like she is drawing figures out from the surface of the paint in a way where it's like a search and it's this very sort of visceral thing and she always uses the same container of medium for a body of work and as she works from one painting to the next it becomes murkier and murkier and sort of each painting sort of has this echo of the palette of the one that was just made if that makes sense oh that's fascinating Um, so almost like a lineage in paint yeah Yeah. her work is beautiful and also a polish artist alexandra walashevska and i'm sure i'm butchering that (laughs) name but when I was deep in painting these these scenes with all of the eyes and the mouths that keep insisting and insisting on one another, I found this book of her work and she also has these paintings with these proliferations of eyes and mouths and it's almost like a bit goth, her work, or has this lowbrow element but also has this kind of symbolist driver behind it. Yeah, I find her work really fascinating and mm. raw. So we can see your work at Pillar Corius now. Opening is open until the 6th of January. Is That's that right? right. Yep. And you've got another exhibition coming up early next year in Australia? Yeah, it's at the Perth Institute for Contemporary Arts, Pika. And is that new work or is that, a, yeah? That's new work, oh, yes. Wow. I have my work cut <laughs> out for me when time? I step off the plane when I get yeah, home. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good question. It's a very busy time, but we'll get there. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that exhibition because I have not been to WA nor shown there before. So Yeah, so for anybody who hasn't been to Australia, we only ever get to Perth the, or Western Australia once in a lifetime, if that, because it's very far it's, away. Yeah. It's it quicker is, to get to China or something. Yeah. Is that an extension of this work or is that um, uh, a different kind of series? It's been interesting because I've been making the two bodies of work in parallel. There are certain things that are like crossing over, Mm. but I feel like the work have their own quality as well. All of the canvases in that show start out as raw surfaces with monoprint sort of textures on them. I love it already. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so they sort of get built up and I've been in my mind – You know, I think in the space there's a window that's quite a strong light source at one end and I anticipate the works having the parts where the raw canvas is preserved being also permeable to the light and that maybe you have this encounter with the works from the other side where Mm. there's one layer that's illuminated and then you come around and read them the other way. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And Perth is only a 20-hour, 18-hour a flight from, from here, here. I so. think you can do a direct flight <laughs> from what I know yeah no no jump worries. on a plane yeah you've exactly. got a few thousand spare pounds yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um I also wondered what was on your bookshelf or what else are you reading of course you've written your own book mm. painting is a critical form which was published in 2015 as part of your PhD is that available 
It's currently out of print, though. I am contemplating getting it reprinted. Oh, um, do let us know. And meanwhile, you can download it as a PDF from my website, which okay. is just helenjohnson.net, because it was only a very small local print run at the time. I just thought okay. lots of people ask me for it, so I just put it up. Oh, lovely. Mm. Uh, what else is going on in the reading department? I mean, for the past couple of years, I've been pretty deep in clinical texts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have been reading one whilst I'm here that's fascinating by Catherine Killick, who I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. It's in a book that she published with another analytic art therapist, Joy Shaverian about art therapy approaches for psychosis specifically. And what I'm finding really fascinating is um, the descriptions she gives of what was possible under the NHS in the 1980s uh, mm. when she was working as an art therapist. Um, you know, she was working in a, in a psychiatric inpatient unit where they had a whole dedicated ward that was repurposed as an art therapy space and it had a big shared room where each patient who wanted to participate in art therapy was given a space that was theirs with a table and a chair in it and whatever materials they wanted to engage with and they could be in there four hours a day, five days a week and then they would have a one-hour session a week with their art therapist in a private setting and just thinking, wow, like what was possible because we know um, that is absolutely not the case now. Unthinkable, yeah. particularly because, you know, there's been a massive shift since then to like a care in the community model. So people mm. don't tend to be on long-term psychiatric uh, admissions anymore unless they're very acute. Um, and a lot of that is don't care in the community. Exactly, say, yeah. yeah. So it's, a, you know, on some levels... There's been a loss in terms of what was possible when Mm. people could be engaging in a sustained way in a therapeutic Mm. process that they then were also able to keep accessing once they were discharged. Mm. Whereas now, I don't know about here, but in Australia it's very much like once someone gets discharged from that setting, that's it, you're not allowed to interact with them Mm. outside. So there's this real problem with continuity of care. And surely somebody worked that out on a piece of paper with a ledger on it or something like that. I mean, that's not worked out in terms of how people function and relate to one another, is it? No, it's very much, yeah, some yeah. middle manager signing off on something they <laughs> probably not had much experience of. <laughs> but we're not going to finish on that note. How are you finding London? How did you get involved with um, working in the UK? Um, I... I did an exhibition as part of the Glasgow International that was curated by Sarah McCrory Mm -hmm. and Pilar came up to meet me when that show was on. Now I'm going to be fuzzy with my dates, 2015 or 2016? I think it was 2015. How fantastic. As you know, Australia is really far away. You know, you don't get that interaction really with Australian artists over here. No, it's it's like another world. You're, that's because you're very special. And your work <laughs> is very special. So we're we're very lucky, very lucky mm. to have you. It's lucky for me to. I like my family are from here. My parents emigrated to Australia in okay. 1975, so a few years before I was born. So it it feels right for me to have this connection and yeah. this reason to return. Yeah, that's lovely. 
Helen Johnson, I've really enjoyed this. I could go on and on. You've probably got jet lag, so you probably need a little <laughs> nap. Uh, but thank you so much for being on Art Fictions. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it too. Good. So that's it for this year. I honestly cannot express enough gratitude for those of you who have tuned into this podcast, for the generosity of our hosts, Elizabeth Fullerton, Palumi Odobanjo, Vanessa Murrell and Cherry Smith. Plus, of course, for the truly fascinating guests who've led the way, taken the time to talk with us and share their stories of art and demonstrate over and over the art of stories. Once again, a huge thanks to those who've supported this program via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. As a voluntary project, we are humbly grateful for any funding that helps with production. Speaking of which, thank you to Laurie E. Allen, who co-produced this episode, to Griffin Knipe for the music, and Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions for our jolly logo. Have a wonderful, thoughtful, warm, restful, colourful, exciting, whatever you wish for, listening, reading, seeing and making time through the end of this year and the arrival of the next one. Ciao for now. Ciao for now.